0: Uh, John chapter 8, verses 31 to 39. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, Everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing what Abraham did. Some translations say Abraham's works. You would do the works of Abraham. We're in John 8, we're continuing on. The background for this theme, or this uh, context rather, is the Feast of Tabernacles still. uh, It's important for us to understand uh, that that has been where we're at. We're in the temple, and in verse 30, we saw that many believed as a result of Jesus' teaching. And what we're not sure on is what type of belief it is. And what Jesus does in verse 31 is he drills down on, presses in on a specific group who have believed or confessed belief in Jesus. He, he presses in on the Jews. Now, anytime John uses that phrase, he's using it for those who have opposed Jesus. So now we're kind of confused. These people who have opposed Jesus, are they believing in Jesus? Is this genuine faith, authentic faith? That's the question that we're supposed to ask and we're supposed to wonder about. And then what Jesus does is he gives us a tool by pressing in on them. He gives us a tool for measuring and authenticating genuine and authentic faith. And what we see is when he presses on them, and he gives this tool in verse 31, and he asks or presses the statement into them, what they quickly reveal is that they are actually not believers in Christ. They are actually still enslaved to sin. And then what we see is Jesus, remarkably, even though they still keep him at an arm's length, even though they still reject him, even though by verse 59 in chapter 8 they want to stone him, Jesus is still holding out the hope of freedom as our true liberator, the hope of the gospel to them. And so this morning what we're going to see are those three things, the evidence of faith, the evidence of slavery, and then Jesus as our true liberator. That's where we're going in the text this morning. That's what we're going to see. And there is so much here as we study the text and so I hope that the tryptophan is worn off and that we're all, all in and, and ready to go here. Verse 31, let's look at the evidence of faith. Verse 31, Jesus drills down on this crowd. It says, the Jews who had believed in him. And as I said, when we hear that, we, we ought to feel a little bit of tension because as we've looked through the Gospel of John so far, the Jews always have been in John's language, those religious leaders who have opposed Jesus. And now we're being told they believed. Now, anytime we see belief, verse 30 and then verse 31, we should celebrate that. That should be something that we celebrate and and, and get excited about. We shouldn't necessarily raise the eyebrow skeptically over these people just yet, but we should ask the question. And John always is forcing the question. Is this authentic belief? Is this genuine belief? Is this full-throated, full-committed, unreserved faith in Jesus? Or is this some other kind of faith? Is this circumstantial faith or nominal faith, meaning they just kind of acknowledge Jesus? Is this like our cultural Christianity that we live in where where everybody's supposedly a, a Christian and a follower of Christ by their religious performance? Is that what this is or is this genuine faith? We're intended to ask that question. But more than that, we're always intended to not simply investigate and evaluate someone else's faith. In this case, the Jews in this text. We're not simply uh, being called to evaluate someone else's faith. We're being called to evaluate our own. Have I confessed Christ as Savior and King? Have I submitted to Him as Savior and King? Have I put my faith in Him? Have I received in John's language and believed in John's language Jesus as Savior and King, the Son of God, the Messiah? We're intended to see ourselves, ask ourselves, and self-evaluate ourselves in this text. What's interesting to me is that John repeatedly shows us people who've, who've believed in, this, in his gospel. He's always highlighting those who believed, and he talks about it. We see it in verse 30, many believed. And then he does something also interesting, and I think it's, it can only be a mark of the Holy Spirit inspiring the writer, because if we were writing a story, we would, we would only focus on all the good and everyone who believed. We'd, we'd hide all the people who kind of said they believed and then walked away. John doesn't do that. John puts right in front of us all of this division over who Jesus is. He also puts right in front of us. He did it in chapter 2, he did it in chapter 6, and he's doing it again here. Right in front of us, people who confess belief, but who actually walk away. You say, why does John do that? Because it's the entire point of why he's writing the gospel. He wants us to evaluate and investigate our own hearts, our own minds, our own confession, our own belief. Have we seen and believed and received and clung to Jesus as the Son of God, the Messiah, and thereby experienced eternal life? Or are we like these people who make a confession but walk away? That's what he's doing in this text, and that's what we're intended to to do in this text, is look in and evaluate ourselves. And then what we see here is that Jesus is doing, we're being drawn to this by Jesus pressing in on these Jews who believed. And he provides us an answer for how we know whether their faith is genuine and how we know whether our faith is genuine. He says in verse 31, "'If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples.'" How do I know if I'm genuinely a follower of Christ? How do I know if I'm genuinely, authentically a a, a believer? How do I know if my life has been transformed? There's a variety of tests or evidences throughout the scriptures. And we're called, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, to test our faith, to evaluate our faith, to inspect our faith. There's all kinds of tests, but Jesus gives us one in this text. And it's the test of time. If you abide in my word, you are truly, really, certainly, indeed, a disciple of Jesus. There's so much to unpack in that just that one little sentence. The first thing he says is if you abide. That's another major theme through the Gospel of John. In the original language, the, the word means to, to hold, uh, hold fast to. That's sometimes how it's translated. But it also means to stand steadfast in the same location over time. No matter the adversity, no matter the circumstances, to stay true no matter what. We do this on our wedding days. When We, we may not know it, but when we make a confession or we make a covenant, enter into a covenant on our wedding days, what we're saying is, I, I promise to be true and faithful to you. We say that, we know those words, but what we're also promising is, I promise to be true and faithful 10 years and 20 years and 50 years down the road to be just like we are right now, holding hands side by side, in this together, coming together, I promise to be true and faithful no matter the circumstances. That's what we're doing on our wedding days. And here what we're being told is if we abide or hold fast to or dwell in or endure or persist in the word, we are truly disciples of Jesus. And what he's talking about here is a matter of duration. A matter of time. So to the Jews, the religious leaders who were oppressing and, and, and opposing Jesus, who now it looks like they've believed, what he says is time will tell. Time will tell whether or not your confession is genuine or authentic. Time is our greatest ally. Ta- time will, will bear out and, and give witness to whether or not your confession is true, whether or not your belief is authentic, whether or not it is genuine. In fact, time does tell. And when we're thinking about time, and I'm talking about time, we're talking about a lifetime. But in fact, in this text, we see just two verses really quickly that their belief is not genuine. And then as we study the rest of chapter 8, we see why it's not genuine. We see how it's not genuine and how it bears itself out. In just a few verses, what they're going to do is, in verse 33, they're going to object to Jesus. They're going to actually ask, who do you think you are saying this? That's actually what they're saying. And then what we're going to see is Jesus tells us that they are actually still slaves to sin. They persist in rejecting God's Messiah. And then they not only do that, but they reject Jesus' word. In verse 37, what he tells them is, my word has found no home in you. It's found no place in you. Why? Because you reject it. And then later, down in verse 44, he's going to say, you're actually under the di- a different ruler and under a different reign. You're not under the rule and reign of God. You're under the rule and reign of Satan, who is a liar and the father of lies, and you two are also liars. And you think he's getting pretty stern here. And he goes on and he presses. And then what we see is by the end of the chapter in verse 59, they actually want to stone him. So what we start with in verse 31, that looks like belief, reveals itself, authenticates itself, and what we see is by the end of the chapter, they actually want to kill Jesus. They don't want to submit to Jesus. Time will tell. And the text bears that out. So we're told that if you abide you are truly my disciples, but he gives us a qualifier, a specific thing. What are we supposed to abide in? What are we supposed to hold fast to? What are we supposed to remain steadfast in? He says, in my word. Now, immediately, we we, we read this text, and the first thing our minds go to is the word of God, the written word of God, and and that's, that's not wrong to think that, but it's secondary to what Jesus is saying. What Jesus is articulating is, if you Abide in my teaching and the claims that I have made. If you hold fast to the teaching of Jesus, hold hold fast to the claims of Jesus, then you are truly my disciples. Well, what is the claim of Jesus? What What are the teachings of Jesus? First and foremost, what he's talking about here is his claim to be the Son of God, his claim to be the Messiah. His claim to be the true king of God. His claim to be one with God. His claim to be our substitute. What he's talking about here is the gospel. The good news that though we should be crushed because of our sin, Jesus has come to substitute himself on our behalf to be crushed on our behalf. To reconcile sinful man to a holy God. That's the gospel. And what Jesus has been proclaiming from the beginning of John what John has been capturing for us and all of the stories that he's been mapping out for us through the gospel of John is this truth that Jesus is God in the flesh and that he has come to reconcile sinful man to a holy God. If we remain steadfast in clinging to that truth and those claims, then we are truly indeed certainly a disciple of Jesus. Now where do we find the content of those claims? We find it in the word of God. So you see how the the written word is secondary to the person of the word, the capital W word. That's what we're talking about first and foremost and it's his claims of the truth and reality of who he is and what he's come to do as we allow, as Paul says in Colossians, to let the word dwell in us richly and as we cling to the word, the claims that he's made, we are truly his disciples. This is what Jesus is telling us here. Now, it raises the question, how does holding fast, how does clinging to, holding fast to the truth of Jesus' identity and the claims that he's making, how does holding fast to that give evidence of authentic faith? And there's really, I'd like to suggest maybe two reasons. There's, there's probably more, but two at least. The first is to embrace the claim that Jesus is the Son of God and the King of all kings, the King of kings, to embrace that claim is not natural. It's supernatural. It's supernaturally enabled. Why do you say that? Because what are we doing in embracing the gospel? We're embracing the, the good news that I am a sinner and should be crushed and that I have a Savior who was crushed on my behalf. Do you realize what we're confessing in this moment? We have to confess. If Jesus is king, what I'm also confessing is I'm not. That's not natural. Our natural bent as a a result of Genesis chapter 3 is to always reject and rebel and flex against authority, specifically the authority of God. You're not king. I'm king. That's what we're saying as we sin and as we persist in sin. And what Jesus is saying, and what we're learning here, is that to hold fast to the truth of who Jesus is, that he is the Son of God, the Messiah, the only one that can give everlasting life, what we're confessing is that I am not. I'm not the Son of God. I'm not the Savior of the world. I'm not the Messiah. I cannot give myself everlasting life. That can't give me everlasting life. That can't give me everlasting life, and neither can that. And that's what we're confessing as we confess Jesus as King. He is our Savior, and I am not. And that's not a natural confession. It's supernaturally enabled. John bears this out in 1 John 4, 15. He says, Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. Embedded in Jesus' claim that he is the Son of God and the King is that we must submit to him. And if we confess that he is the King, then we're also confessing that we're not. And to give up our personal authority and to submit to Jesus' authority does not happen apart from a work, the work of the Holy Spirit. It's what Ezekiel 36 talks about, that, that we have a heart of stone. It's hardened. It's, it's intent and, 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 and bent towards rebelling against God. Only the Holy Spirit can remove that heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh. And when he does, Ezekiel 36, 25, 26, 27 says, we are moved to follow his decrees. We long to follow his decrees. We love to submit. That doesn't happen naturally. That's a supernatural enabling. And so that's the first reason. The second reason that holding fast gives evidence of authentic faith is that persistence in holding fast to Jesus' claims is not possible apart from genuine life transformation. Persistence is also empowered by the Holy Spirit persistence in obedience, persistence in the pursuit of holiness is empowered by the Holy Spirit and gives evidence of life transformation. And it's not possible to cling to and hold to persistently and continue in obedience unless there has been life transformation. See, here's the thing, and I think most of you understand this. Following Jesus, submitting to Not only his claim of who he is, son of God and the Messiah and king of kings, submitting to that is not natural, but also submitting to his commands is not natural. It's supernaturally enabled. So in other words, that his commands as a follower of Christ are difficult, but as John says later in 1 John 5, they're not burdensome, they're not crushing they're difficult for a follower of Christ, but they're not burdensome. They're not crushing for someone who has not been transformed by the gospel. Someone who has not been, been the, the, the gospel has not been illuminated. They've not clung to Jesus. For someone who, in that condition, that person doesn't simply find them difficult. They find them burdensome. The commands of God, the commands and teachings of Jesus, they come. They find them frustrating, and they find persistence in obedience to actually be impossible. Go, go back and compare Psalm chapter one with Psalm chapter two. In Psalm chapter one, it talks about the, the man who is planted in stream next to streams of living water and his delight is the law of God. You know what that's saying, right? His delight is submitting to the commands of God. Are the commands of Jesus a delight to you? Are, are, are the commands of Jesus to give that up to obey in this situation, to stop that and to pursue this, is that a delight to you? Does it bring you great joy? That's evidence of life transformation, that the Spirit is enabling and the Spirit is working in your life. That's the fresh air of the Spirit. Now compare Psalm 1 with Psalm 2. Psalm 2, why do the nations rage? Because kings attempt to throw off the bonds of God, throw off the rule of God. It says God sits and laughs at that. Why? Because they're seeking to live independent from God, and it actually results in more chaos and more death and more wars and more fighting and more animosity and more division. See, here's what happened as a result of the fall. In Genesis chapter 2, we were walking in light, in life, and in freedom. But a deceiver came in and said, the light, life, and freedom you're walking in is actually... Darkness, death, and slavery. What you need is to come out from under the rule of God, out from under the authority of God. And when you live independent and autonomous, when you're separate from God, that's when you are walking in light and life and freedom. But as the scriptures bear out throughout the entire scriptures, and then now what Jesus is saying and what he's been saying since chapter 6, is no, unfortunately you think you're walking in light, life, and freedom, but in reality you're walking in darkness, death, And slavery, but there's hope because I have come and I've come to give you light and to give you life and to give you freedom, to liberate you so that you see what is truly true and really real, so that you have identity and peace and purpose and hope and it's not found in anything else. So, how does holding fast to the gospel, the teaching of who Jesus is, and submitting to the teachings of Jesus, how does that give? Witness to, first, because it's not natural, and second, because as we persist in obedience, we're giving evidence. So so let me be clear. Let me just kind of summarize this point and tie a little bow on this. Perseverance, obedience, and holiness don't earn us right standing with God. Right standing with God leads to perseverance, obedience, and holiness. It produces it, It is the result, these things are the result of transformation in the Spirit. And so for that reason, we can say, without a shadow of a doubt, definitively, that perseverance, obedience, and endurance are evidences of genuine faith. And that's what Jesus is saying here in verse 31. If you abide in my word, in the gospel, in the truth of who I am, and the teachings of what I'm calling you to submit to, You are truly my disciples. If you do this, and if you do this persistently over time, you're giving evidence of genuine transformation. How do we know if the Jews have done this? Time will tell. And what does time tell? It tells that they actually have not done this, that their lives have not been transformed, that they persist in sin. Rather than submit, they balk. Rather than listen, they reject. Rather than their affections deepening, their anger increases. Rather than seeing Jesus as beautiful and worthy of worship, they want to stone him. Now, interestingly, Jesus says there will be two results as as a result of our clinging to, abiding in, holding fast to, and persistence in holding fast to. He says there's two results. Verse 32, and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. First, we will know the truth. I, I think this is interesting. Augustine says faith is to believe what you do not see. Truth is to see what you have believed. He's commenting on this verse. Faith is to believe what you do not see. Truth is to see what you have believed. What is he saying? What is Jesus saying here? It's only on the other side of faith in Jesus that we begin to see truly who Jesus is, what he came to do, and who I am. In light of that, it's only then that we begin to understand. This is why Augustine says understanding is the reward of faith, not the means to it. In other words, it's on the other side of faith that I begin to actually fully see, understand, and comprehend the magnitude of who Jesus is. The magnitude of what he came to do. The magnitude of my sin. Up until that, it requires faith. I see lots of confused faces, so let's try to illustrate this just a little bit. C.S. Lewis, I think, does a masterful job of trying to help us understand this a little bit in the Chronicles of Narnia in multiple places. He, he, he uses different analogies and different stories to get there. There's a story in the silver chair, one of the books of the Chronicles of Narnia, of a character named Jill, and she is desperately thirsty, dying of thirst. And she hears a, a, a stream bubbling in the background, somewhere in the distance, and, and she runs to it through the woods, and she gets there, and she stops dead in her tracks when she sees it. It's beautiful, and it's awesome, but she's standing mouth wide open because she can't move because she's frozen by fear and terror because on the other side of the stream, C.S. Lewis says, like the lions of Trafalgar Square, where Paul's just sitting there like this, is, is Aslan the lion, the great king which ultimately represents Jesus. And in this scene, he's sitting there on the stream with his paws draped over the edge of the stream, and he's standing there staring her eye to eye, and she doesn't move because she's terrified. And she begins to start to ask a question, and she says, uh, will, will you leave? <laughs> and he says, No. And she's starting to inch forward because she's so desperate for water and she can't, she knows that she needs this water to live, and she inches forward just a little bit more. And she says, Well, do you eat little girls? And he says, Well, yes. I've eaten little girls and little boys, and I've eaten kings and I've eaten kingdoms. And she says, Well, I should find another stream then. He said, There is no other stream. You must drink from this stream. And in that moment, what C.S. Lewis is depicting for us and showing for us is that for her to drink from that stream means for her to surrender her fear of what Aslan the lion might do to her or might ask of her. And so for her to get down on a knee and to submit and to drink from the water means that she's giving herself up to the lion that could pounce and could eat and could devour her. And And Lewis says in another place that There's another character that asks about the lion, the the king, Aslan, and and says, is he safe? And the character responds, no, he's not safe. But he's good, I tell you. He's the king. What is he saying in that moment? That it's only when we approach Jesus, obedience to him is terrifying. Terrifying submitting to him, clinging to him, casting all our hope and confidence in him and nothing else, not my works, not my own self-righteousness, nothing else, but putting all my eggs in that basket is terrifying. And then even obedience to him. What's he gonna ask me to do? What's he gonna gonna demand of me? What am I gonna have to give up? It's terrifying, but on the other side of submitting, on the other side of bending down and drinking from the water, what we find is he's a good king. He's a benevolent king, a loving king. And anything he ever asks and anything he ever demands of us is always for our good and his glory. This is what Jesus is revealing here when he says, and then you will know the truth. On this side of faith, it looks terrifying. On this side of faith, we begin to understand the magnitude of who he is, the magnitude of what he's done, the magnitude of my sin and the depths of his grace. In light of that, And then he says something even more profound in the text here in verse 32. He says, and the truth will set you free. Now this is all plastered all over every university in the world, right? It's all over every seal that we've ever seen. The truth will set you free. But when they're talking about the truth in that sense, it's always nebulous and vague. Knowledge, academic information will set you free. That's what they mean when they put that on their seals all over over these universities. That's not what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about the on the other side of faith, when we begin to see Him truly for who He is and we find the freedom that He offers, what we begin to realize is that we've been set free from having to find and define our identity based on anything in this world. We're set free from having to... to, base my meaning and my value and my identity on possessions and, and relationships and success or failure or, or stuff or, or whatever I might accomplish or have. Or, I, I'm set free from setting and basing my identity on those things. I'm now free because my identity is in Jesus. My identity is in a, the, the fact that I'm a son or a daughter of the King, that I've been invited in. That's my true peace that's my true identity and that jesus says is liberating that is true freedom that's when you begin to see truly true truth real real but as it is because we live on this side of 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 sin and because we've been affected by sin what jesus is telling us is that you do not see accurately You do not see truly as you ought to see. You you have eyes, yes, as he says in Matthew, but you do not see. Yes, you are alive, but you are not alive. Yes, you're in the light, but you're not actually in the light. Which sounds like Jesus is trying to confuse us. But in reality, what he's inviting us to do is only through him will you see accurately, know accurately, understand truly. Paul says in Colossians that in Christ are hidden all the wisdom and knowledge of God. Paul repeatedly calls Jesus the mystery of God, and that our God is a mystery, and the, the relationship to Him is mystery, and that Jesus is the, the key to understanding the mystery of who God is and how we relate to Him. This is what's promised if we embrace the truth of the gospel and remain persistent in the truth of the gospel. So here's what's interesting that should be glorious good news. It should go, it should make us go, well, I want that. Please, yes, please. Seconds and thirds, thank you. I want more of that. But what happens in the text in verse 33? They don't get excited. They don't rejoice. Instead, they object. What are they doing in this moment? They're giving evidence that this is not their hope and their claim. Look at what they say in verse 31. We are offspring of Abraham. And have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? First and foremost, we need to understand what they're saying here. They say it in the last half of the verse. Who do you think you are, Jesus? I'm exactly who I've claimed to be from the beginning. I'm the Messiah, the Son of God, the one with authority to liberate and set you free. What they're saying and why they're saying it is because they don't actually believe that. They don't cling to Jesus as Messiah. Look at what they do cling to. We're descendants of Abraham. We are part of the line of God. We're the people of God. We have special favor before God. In our vernacular, it's because we're religious. It's because we we pursue God. Look at what we have done. Their boast is not in the Messiah that God has sent. Their boast is in themselves as Messiah. That's where their hope is. Look at, the, this is their confidence and their, and their hope and their boast. And it proves that they are actually slaves and in bondage to sin. We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. Now that's an ironic and interesting statement for the people of Israel. We have never been enslaved to anyone. Who do you think you are saying that you can set us free? So if we read it like it sounds, it's a, it's a really odd statement because, I mean, what about Egypt? What about Babylon? What about Assyria? What about who they, they, they must submit to now under their rule, Rome? So here's what they're doing. They're not talking about political slavery to some political country or, 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 or some other rule. They're talking about spiritual slavery. What they're saying is we have never been spiritually enslaved. We're the people of God. What they're boasting in is their special proximity As the people of God. And what the word they use here is descendants or offspring. We're offspring of Abraham. We're descendants. We're we're connected to God just by virtue of being Israelites. We don't have to boast in anything else. And so what they're revealing is Jesus is not their Messiah. Jesus is not their Savior. Their religious performance is their Savior. Their their religion is their Savior. Their heritage is their Savior. Their, Their ethnicity is their Savior. Something external is their Savior and their Messiah, not Jesus. That's what they're confessing here. That's what they're boasting in. Though they think they're free, they're actually slaves. You say, okay, Neil, I need a little bit more help. How are they slaves? They're religious. They're pursuing God. How do religious people, how can religious people be slaves? How can religious people be far from God? Here's what he says here. Verse 34, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. There's a couple of things that Jesus is saying here. First, the, the word sin that he uses is, is harmartia in the, in the Greek language. It's, and we often hear it, Tommy mentioned it last week, is missing the mark. What it sounds like when we hear that definition, it's nice and cute and quaint. looks like we're trying really hard, but we missed the target. That's not what harmartia means. It means we didn't try to aim at the right target. We intentionally rebelled and aimed at the wrong target, and we even missed that one. <laughs> we're terrible shots. That's what what this word means here. John uses a different word later in 1 John. He says sin is lawlessness. It's persistence in rebelling against God. What are they persisting in that makes them slaves to sin? They are persisting in rejecting God's only Messiah. They are persisting in rejecting the only Savior and the only King that God has offered. They are persistent in rejecting the only means of God, uh, how he reconciles sinful man to a holy God. They're keeping Jesus at arm's length. That's how religious people can still be enslaved to sin. Because what we do is we keep Jesus at arm's length and we trust in our own effort and our own performance and we hold up. Look, God, look at, look, I read my Bible today. I read it three times today. I read it 25 times today. Look at what I've done. Look, look, God, I went to church. Look how much I gave. Look how much I did. Look at the mission trip that I went on. Look at, I, look at that thing that I did. Look at that time that I made that confession. Look at those things. They're keeping Jesus at arm's length and they're elevating an And holding up what they have done, their heritage, instead instead of saying, God, everything I could ever possibly hold up to you is rubbish. The only thing that would ever make me right before you is him, Jesus, the Savior and King. That's what we ought to do. That's what we ought to do. They ought to do. That's not what they're doing. And that's why they are still enslaved to sin. And because, and this is, again, it just the hits just keep coming. They just keep getting better and better. Because they are slaves to sin, Jesus reveals you're also not children of God. Your family descendant, your family heritage has amounted to nothing. You are not actually in right standing with God. He says it this way in verse 35. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son... Remains forever. What Jesus begins to do is compare and contrast a slave with a son. And what he's saying here, and he, and he tells us here, and what we know intuitively, is that a slave is temporary. A slave has no permanent residence. A slave can be sold, a slave can be traded. That's what he's highlighting. There is no permanence for a slave. A, a, a slave can make a comment and be gone tomorrow. What are the Jews doing? We believe, and what do they do two verses later? We don't believe. A slave is temporary. A slave is not permanent. A slave has no permanent residence, no family actual connectivity. But a son is radically different. A son is family. A son is permanent. A son is in the family line and has permanent residence within the family. And also has authority. And that's what Jesus says next. And that's where he's inviting them. That's where he's going with this. You are still slaves. But I'm not. I'm the Son. And if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I have the authority of the Father. And I can set you free. Come to me. Embrace me. Cling to me. Abide in me. And my word and you will be free. This is where he goes. He begins to reveal that he is our true liberator. Look at what happens here in verse 33. In verse 33, they use a particular word. We are offspring of Abraham. They use it again. Jesus uses it again in verse 37. And he uses their word. He says, I know that you are offspring of Abraham. But he uses a radically different word in verse 39. He says, if you are Abraham's children... You would be doing the work Abraham did. Yes, you are descendants technically, but you're not family. Why? In verse 37, it says, Because the word of God, the words of Jesus, have found no place in you. You've cast them aside. Why? Because you don't actually resemble your father Abraham. Children always resemble their parents. They resembled in action, in deed, in look, in every other way. They resembled their parents. What he's saying is, you're descendants, but you're not children. You don't resemble Abraham. How do they not resemble Abraham? Because they didn't do the works of Abraham. They did not do what Abraham did. Now what we have to do is go, what did Abraham do? If you remember back in Genesis chapter 12, God came to a man named Abram, and his name was later changed to Abraham, and he said, follow me. And what did Abraham do? He gave up his family. He gave up his land. He left his immediate heritage and immediate family and and, and the land. He left everything and he obeyed and he followed God despite knowing everything. What did he do? He put his faith in God. He put his trust in God. And what we learn later is that this was credited to him as righteousness, or counted to him as faith, and given, he was given right standing before God. This is what Paul says, what Genesis says. And Paul, describing this, says it this way. Abraham's faith, he was, able, he was fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. What did Abraham do? He trusted God. He trusted that God was who he said he was and could do what he said he could do. Make from him a great nation. And therefore he believed. What is Jesus inviting this crowd to do? Trust me that I am who I say I am. And trust that I can do what I said I could do. I can reconcile you to God. I can move you from slavery to freedom as sons and daughters. I have the power to do that. I have the authority to do that. And interestingly, that's what sons had. Slaves had no authority in the home, but sons had the authority of the father, and they could say to a slave, you're no longer a slave, you're free. They could even say to a slave, you're no longer a slave, you're free, and you're a member of our family and our household. Jesus is inviting them to embrace him as Savior and King. There is one who can set them free, and it is Jesus. He is the Son. He, is in, he has the permanent residence. He has the authority of the Father, and if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. So again, the question of the text, what will you do with Jesus? The question John's inviting, he's drawing to the top, is who are you? Are you a person who has embraced Jesus? Have you embraced the truth that he is the Son of God, he is the Messiah, and he is your only means of being reconciled to a holy God? Have you embraced that truth? Are you submitting to his authority, his kingship? Are you submitting in obedience? Do you find great joy in that? Or are you like these Jews who make a confession, but in reality, there's been no transformation? In reality, you don't actually submit. That's the question of the text yet again. So in application, we've already kind of hit on this, but is your faith genuine? Nominal faith will not do. To to, to have nominal faith, nominal faith means name only. I'm a Christian, just like everybody else that lives in the South, right? that, that, That will not cut it with Jesus, and that's why he's pressing on these religious leaders. Name only Christianity, cultural Christianity Will get you nowhere, it will merit you nothing, it will leave you empty and longing for more. But what Jesus offers is depth, is truth, is freedom, is life, is light, is true bread. This is this is so important for us to see and, and ask. Is my faith genuine? I love what C. S. Lewis says, Tim Keller picks up on it, says it similarly that we either have to crown Jesus or kill Jesus. We cannot stand in the middle and say, man, he's pretty interesting. We can't do that. We're not allowed to do that. That's not what John is forcing here. John's forcing us to one side or the other. We have to get out of the middle. We either have to crown him as king and therefore submit to his authority and his leadership. We have to obey him, pursue holiness, or we have to kill him. And when we kill him, what we're saying is, He's not the king I am. So is your faith genuine? Which is it? Jesus says, if you abide in my word, you're truly my disciples. Another interesting application point here, and I think it's important, is are you a child or a slave? Maybe put another way, do you have the confidence of a child or do you have the confidence of a slave? What do I mean? In verse 35, he says something so profound. The slave does not remain in the house forever the son remains forever. Sons and daughters of God have no fear. They have full assurance, full confidence. Why? It's not in themselves. It's in the one who grips them and will not let them go. That's what Jesus says in John chapter 10, verse 28. No one can snatch you out of my hand. Are you walking in that confidence and that freedom this morning? or are you walking in the confidence of a slave? The only reason you would ever walk in the confidence of a slave is if your confidence and hope is in yourself. If your confidence and hope is in yourself, then you never know if you've done enough. You never know if you've prayed enough, prayed the right way, with the right motives, the right intention. You never know if you've read enough. You never know if you know enough. You never know if you went enough. You never know if you gave enough. That's the confidence of a slave. Is that, let me just ask you, is that the confidence that Jesus came to give you? Is that the hope that Jesus came to give you? You know the answer. No, it's not. He came to set you free from that slavery. Are you a child or a slave? Do you have the confidence of a child or a slave? Lastly, and this again is the point of the text, have you embraced the Son? Have you clung to Jesus? Have you, in using John's language, received and believed Jesus, which means to cast all your hope, cast all your life on him, to to say, he is my hope. Nothing else will do. I bring nothing to the cross. Only he and he alone. I cling to him and him alone. He is my hope. If I were to stand before God right now and he were to ask me, "Why why should I let you in? The proverbial question that we hear sometimes in evangelism strategy, the proverbial question that, why should I let you in? I will not say, because of what I did on that day one day because of my heart, because of how intense I was with my my experience of spirituality. I I will not say, because of how much I read, how much I know, I will only say, Jesus, He is my hope. He is my life. He is my bread. As we we end here, again, Augustine says that the, the Gospel of John could be deep enough for a child to wade in. He says it could be deep enough for an elephant to drown in. There's another layer that's happening here and I think it's amazing. John and Jesus are retelling a story that we're very familiar with in the book of Exodus. And they've been doing it since chapter 6. And here what we see is the culmination of it. In the book of Exodus, Israel is in what? Bondage to Egypt. And what they're in desperate need of is to be set free. And what happens with Israel and Egypt is is that God hears the cries of his people and he comes to the rescue of his people and he leads them out of bondage. He leads them to the Red Sea. And they cry out, did you bring us out here to die? And what does he do? He parts the Red Sea and he leads them by a pillar of cloud cloud by day and a a pillar of fire by night. He leads them by light. And what does he do every day while they wander through the wilderness? He leads them by light. And he leads them and he gives them bread. And he gives them water. And how, what is he doing all this for? Because he's sustaining them with true life. What has Jesus said since chapter 6? I am the bread. I am the water. I am the light. I am the one that sets you free. And in me you will have true freedom. You will have life. Is that true of you this morning? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. It's so deep, so profound. It is miles deep and we could drown in it. There's so many details and so many nuances and so many things. Every time we turn the diamond and see a different facet, we're amazed. Lord, I pray that's true of of our church, of, our, of everyone in this room, I pray that's true, that we're growing in our joy and our affection for you and for your word. Because that's a mark of genuine faith. I pray that we would persist in our study of your word and study of who you are and, and that we would grow in our affections. Or for someone who has not embraced you, I pray that they would not wait any longer. They would run to you, they would cling to you, would find the freedom that you offer, the peace that you offer, the identity that you offer, the hope that you offer. Lord, and for all of us, I pray that we would walk in that hope and walk in that confidence and walk in that freedom and appropriate it, Lord. And as Paul tells us, that we would test to see that we are in the faith. Lord, you've given us a, an evaluative tool. Are we abiding in the truth of the gospel? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.